0: This guy got anything else to do this this week? I mean, three podcasts in a row. What is going on? But hey, I uh, I want to make up. It's kind of like uh, if I miss workouts, I go I go double the next time just because that's what I have to do mentally. Um, so I'm gonna continue on with uh, these Q and A's that I got uh, from you, the Knock On Nation. We're going to plow through a bunch of those. There's a lot of good ones um, that I saw, which we'll continue on with that. Uh, hopefully you all liked the last podcast uh, with my buddy Mike. Suck that we had to cut it short. I really like Mike Slinkert. He's an awesome, awesome dude. And if you ever have a chance to meet him, uh, make sure you do. He's one of those guys where no matter how many times you see him, he's always in a good mood, he's always happy, and uh, he's always got a smile on his face. But uh, I'll tell you this morning... My uh, Well, it's, I think, just before 4 a.m., but I got up about 3 and kind of did my little ritual of making myself a cup of coffee, uh, getting in my hot tub, trying to kind of wake up my body and all that good stuff. And uh, as I do that, that's normally when I kind of scroll through uh, hashtags and stuff like that and try to... You know, see what you all are posting. And one thing that made me happy this morning was I actually came across um, a post from Ryan M. Frazier. And uh, it was a post or a picture of pretty much his group on a block target uh, with a silverback. And he said, uh, I've been dealing with some pretty awful target panic for a few months, so much that I didn't think I'd be hunting this upcoming season. Uh, I just couldn't get it out of my head. And out of my own way. And he said, um, and he pretty much had a picture of a silverback with a good group. And he said, I'm not saying the silverback is for everyone, but this tension activated back uh, release has been the best learning tool for finding my rhythm, solidifying my shot routine, and feeling the pull through. So I still have a long way to go, but I'm happy with where I am after only a few weeks. Um, said he even pulled out his knock to it and shot a few arrows down range as well. So, um, that's good, good news for me. I have, I've had so many, um, so many things with target panic in my own career. I know how frustrating it is. Um, I really wish I had better tools back when I learned. Um, honestly, everybody, when I was, when I was coming up growing, Uh, in archery and the target panic kind of jumped on me you know really the only options back then I remember like one thing that came out everyone would just they'd either make their their triggers light or they'd make their triggers heavy and you know and every weekend people had a different little thing and then um, when I first started I shot a Scott caliper release or wrist strap and this is back when Bill Scott actually um, was still alive and owned the company, and he, uh, his cure for target panic at that time was you know he built that first spring on the on the release, so you know he'd, he'd kind of just tell you okay, just focus on just bending that string and or spring and bending the spring and bending the spring and bending the spring until it fires, and. Honestly, as easy as that sounded, it, it was impossible. Um, I could just never do that and make a good shot. And it took me a long time to fight through the target panic and some of the anticipation I was feeling. And it really got overwhelming. And this past weekend, um, when I was in Switzerland, I had one student um, that came over from Indonesia And he had target panic really bad. And at first, uh, you know, I got him on a silverback and he was shooting it really well. He had target panic super bad, even with the hinge release. Um, Probably, probably the worst I've seen. And switched to a silverback and was shooting really good, really fast. But then just like with most things, uh, you know, you start to kind of that placebo thing wears off. You start to regress. And even though, you know, I'm, I sell silverbacks, I think it's fair for me to say this because this is the reality of if you're fighting with target panic at that level, um, things are going to be placebos. They're going to work for you for a short period of time. And then at that point, you're going to be back um, to really having to focus on um, some of the techniques that I've talked about time and time again. And in addition to that, you really have to get your own mind around the fact that you want to fix it. Um, you know, you really have to focus on a lot of self-assurance and a lot of self-talk. Um, you have to be willing to, to get mad at yourself. Um, you know, don't get mad at the problem, but get really you have to be able to get mad at yourself and feel disappointed in yourself when you do that. Um, you know I don't want you to do it to the point where you where you leave archery but you know <clears throat> it was easy for me in the beginning to just be frustrated with ah oh, freaking target panic and you know it's target panic and you know and the more you say that to yourself the more that word becomes reality and i had to get to the point where i was just like literally talking to myself and saying you're better than this you know, keep your pin on the target. Let's just, you know what to do, you know, just pull through the release, be patient. You know, I started to do games where I would, you know, I'd pull back and once I could actually hold my pin on the target and kind of make a good shot, I would say, okay, you know, I could, I was comfortable there for like two or three seconds. This next shot, let's, you know, I want to be comfortable longer. Let's see how slow I can let's see how much slower I can move this release. And it just got to the point where you could pull back and hold your pin in the center of the gold. Um, and you didn't even have to move the release. Well, you know, you didn't have to rotate it or you didn't have to, you know, you could let off the safety, but you didn't necessarily have to pull. You could just sit there if you wanted. And then it got to the point where it was like, okay, I'm sitting there. My thumb's off the safety. I'm good. You know, and you have to talk to yourself that way. You have to say, I'm okay, this is awesome. You know, this is what I've been talking about. You know, finally freaking doing it. Uh, That's the kind of stuff that you have to reassure yourself about. Because good mental coaches or good coaches or good parents, you know, they're constantly reassuring the positives and they're, you know, and they're lifting you up. And you have to be willing to do that to yourself. You know, you have to be willing to talk to yourself that way. And it'll get to the point where you're actually much much happier with your shooting when you're able to execute shots that way. You know, having having the occasional yip uh, is gonna happen for a lot of people. Um, I've got a lot of students that even though they can make great shots every now and then, I kind of just for whatever reason uh, that little freaking demon jumps in the back of your head and says, you know, make it happen and. You know, you kind of rush the shot, and I, you know, but with the people who have overcome target panic, you can see um, they just instantly get upset with themselves and they're like, "What the hell, man, you're better than that. Um, you know, let's do it the right way. And the other thing too, I'm going to talk about this because this was something um, I, I probably had uh, I would say more than half of my class had target panic last week. And I worked on all of them with learning good shots and focusing on how to pull through. And it took, sometimes it took up to an hour, hour and a half just for them to let off the safety on a blank bale and start to pull through and actually pull through at a pace that wasn't, you know, rushed. It wasn't too fast. Um, you know, it was, it was actually it was actually an executed shot it wasn't uh, it wasn't a shot that was rushed and you know half ass and a shot where they're trying to look at the target and you know it's really hard work to get to that first point where you're actually um you're actually able to understand the manipulation of pulling through the shot and letting off the safety and coming through the shot and there's positives and negatives to that. The positive is you all of a sudden realize what a good shot is. From a coaching point of view, the negative is what happens is people are so excited they feel like their target panic is cured so they instantly just rush um to a long target again or rush out and, you know, put a Vegas face up. And this is this was like every single student I had. Um you know, one of them had it so bad, I wouldn't even give him a sight. I said, listen, no sight. And he made shots for maybe five minutes. And he's like, I need my sight back. And I said, no, you you can't have it. And he's like, no, I want my sight. And I told him, no, I wouldn't give him a sight. I just kind of put it in my bow case and said, you're not having it. Just sit there and, and focus on the execution, focus on how slow and how continual you can pull through a lease without feeling any anxiety, and etc. Well, that was uh, started in the afternoon, so he shot a little bit till the the evening. Uh, We had our break. We came back the next day, and when we came back, you know, I didn't even think about it. It was out of my mind. I go over, and the first thing he's got is his sight on his bow, and he's shooting at a target again, and his shots have regressed um, substantially, and I just you know, I looked at him disappointed. I said, listen, dude, I didn't tell you you could have your sight back yet. You know, you've, I said, how long have you been shooting? He said 15 years. I'm like, okay, how long have you, sh- how long have you been able to put your pin on the target and pull through a shot? And he said, well, I don't know. And I said, okay, well, so for 15 years, you've practiced this shot that is not working for you. And now you're going to practice my way for, you know, literally." two or three hours and you're going to expect to, to be cured. I'm like, no, man, it's not like, it's not like that. You know, it's, it's no different than someone that's, you know, trying to lose weight. Um, you know, losing weight is a, is a, is a life choice and it's something you have to commit to. It's not something that you just, you know, take a pill or you go work out one time and it's gone because, you know, we would all be perfect. We'd all have perfect shots. Um, you know, everybody at the total archery challenge out there would be shooting perfect scores and, uh, you know, it would be a totally different scenario, but when you have target panic, you have to realize, and you have to tell yourself that I'm going to make baby steps right now. First thing is really identifying how bad the situation is. If you feel the most tremor and the most anxiety when you, when you're putting your pin on the target then we need to eliminate that aspect at first and just really ingrain the proper motion and proper pulling through. And believe me, although it sucks and it's not fun when it's a summer day and you're maybe blind bailing or you're shooting a target at 20 yards, um, even though that kind of sucks and it's not as fun as going out and shooting, (laughs) I can guarantee you it's a very, very wise investment because by next summer, um, you're going to be out in the backyard shooting with zero stress. Uh, you're going to be shooting better than you ever have. And archery is going to be a whole new world for you. There's no question about it. Um, you know, I had some students that they understood the, the how to pull through the shot. They were going through the shot good. They were relatively good archers. Um, and then immediately they wanted to try to shoot it at a, at a Vegas face. And once again, you know, I was continually grabbing everybody and taking them back. If you watched some of those live feeds last week, you saw that I actually had 50 meter target faces up and I had my students shooting at them at 10 meters. Every student that you saw doing that was a student that had target panic. Um, you know, I'm not, so when they were shooting really good groups and they were getting pictures and they were happy, yeah, it's easy to argue it was 10 yards, but honestly, what they were happy about was that was, that was at the point where they were finally making good shots long enough to where I put their sights back on their bow and just told them, listen, all you do is look through your sight and just look at the gold do not worry about the pin. And in a lot of cases, even taking their pin out of their lens, um, is a valuable uh, exercise as well. And just make that gold super big, because I can tell you, as soon as every one of those people tried to put their pin back in their target, every time they tried to aim, every time I would make a comment like, oh, that's a really good group, um, which was a test on my part, you could see that once they started thinking about where they wanted their arrow to go, then the that you know anxiety and that panic came back. So what I want to do is I want to encourage all you out there who are working through target panic right now. First off, there there's no one that's had it worse than me. I can tell you that right now. I've had it bad. Um, I know exactly what it feels like. I've worked. You know, it. I had it for ten years. Um, I've sat there and punched the release with the best of them in front of the best of them, uh, felt like a total freaking idiot every time I would go home from the range, knowing that, you know, I was in a pro-am group with Randy Ulmer or, you know, Randy Chapel or Burley Hall. And I'm sitting there punching the release and, you know, looking like a, looking like a total, you know, just like an amateur really. And You know, it just got to the point where that one winter I committed to myself and I just said, listen, I don't care. I do not care how long this takes. We are going to, we're literally, and I'm talking to my mind, we're going to make this happen. Everyone else is able to do it. You know, we need to do it. And, you know, I still remember that very, very first time when my pen was, sitting on that 12 ring and I felt no anticipation all I felt was that my I was staring at the 12 ring I felt like my pin was you know kind of moving around a little bit but I was super comfortable and I remember just waiting and waiting and you know slowly relaxing my finger and just kind of maintaining tension on my rear elbow and then that shot broke that first time and just immediately everything just slowed right down Because it was the first time that in my mind, I made a shot where someone wasn't coaching me. I didn't have to think about it. Um, I just know that that shot broke and every single aspect of it felt good. And, you know, everything just slowed down. Arrow went right into the 12 ring. And for me, that was like, it was just, I just felt like all of a sudden I just broke through the clouds. And I just got it. And you're going to do that too. You're going to have that moment, but it's not going to happen right away. There's a lot of climbing that you're going to have to do uh, before you get to that moment. You know, I remember a couple weeks ago, Adam Greentree, my buddy in Australia, posted a picture um, and he was actually on a mountain above the clouds. And that's what you need to think about. You know, you, you have to climb and climb and climb. And at first there's going to be daylight, but the, you know once you start to get towards that peak, all of a sudden there's going to be there's going to be some fog, there's going to be some rain, there's going to be some blowdowns, there's going to be a bunch of bullcrap that you're going to have to get through. And then all of a sudden once you clear that alpine, it's just going to be a whole new world up there. And that's what I really feel like happened with me with my target panic. And I I really, really feel like, you know, I really feel like if people commit to the silverback, I feel like um, I've got students out there and you guys have seen them um, in my social media accounts. I've got students that all they shoot and all they've ever shot is, is tension activated releases and silverback and Sharon and Harry. That's all they've ever shot ever. And they can make shots. My best groups that I shot literally my best groups that I shot um at that event and the most consistent groups that I shot at that event uh were with my silverback. And I actually posted a video, you can see it at um knockonarchery.com YouTube channel. I actually did a side-by-side comparison with the knock to it and the silverback. You know, I shot a couple arrows with each one and you know the the group speaks for itself and what really should speak for itself is that regardless of what release was in my hand, the shot process is exactly the same. And that's very, very important. And it's critical to you learning what you need to do to come, to overcome target panic. Um, it is a process. No question about it. It's certainly easier when someone's there and someone's talking to you. That's one of the, the worst uh, things as a coach for me is uh having to walk away from someone that I know needs time and needs that voice in their head. Um, but you've got to do that for yourself. You really need to to focus on that, um, whether you play this part of the podcast over and over a few times and and just listen to that before you go shoot so that you've got your head on straight um, and just really be comfortable with um, not having to shoot at small targets. Uh, I had a guy that, literally one of another person uh got you know he saw everyone else working out really good he came and grabbed a silverback he literally shot like two ends and i said okay that's looking really good work on it and i went and talked with one other person turned around and he's already back at 50 meters shooting at a 50 meter feet of face and you know his groups are like all over the place and he's like man i'm really i can really feel this and i just looked at him i'm like what are you freaking doing dude I'm like, I told you to stay over there, you know, I told you to stay over there, and I told you to work on it, and I'm like, you're already back over here, and I'm like, you know, because the problem is, with, with any type of new new anything, if you're learning the proper way, your body's going to want to go back to the original way, your body's going to want to go back to what it's comfortable with, And what happens is if you have a good tool with something and you use it the incorrect way, you're already training your body how to use it. So when people grab a silverback and they have it set so light that as soon as they're letting off the trigger, it fires. Um, You know, you can cheat the system that way. Um, Obviously, this guy just gets to the point where he's not, you know, he was just trying to aim. He wasn't really pulling through. He's just kind of waiting. And then all of a sudden he's like kind of half forcing the shots, forgetting the shot routine. All that stuff is just ingraining your old habits with a new product. And all that's doing is making that product a placebo um, instead of, you know, instead of a helpful tool. So, you know, focus on that. Stay with it, dude. Um, I know you said that, you know, you were even able to make a few shots with your knock to it, and... I can appreciate that. That's good, but I'm also telling you, with fair warning, that if you go out and you have a hundred great arrows with a silverback, and then you, because you're shooting good, you want to grab a release that you've punched in the past, whether it's a sil- whether it's a knock to it, or whether it's, um, whether it's a, you know, a hinge release, whether it's a caliper release, wrist strap release, it really doesn't matter. Um, The bottom line is regardless of what release you're shooting, just just because you've shot your tension release good for a night doesn't mean you should go back because when you go back, it may only take that one or two shots to where now you're ending your night with a negative instead of ending your night with a positive. Um, obviously for, you know, Ryan and Fraser, you ended your night with the positive. So I'm really, really happy about that and congratulations. Um, but I'm also just wanting to make sure I talk to everyone out there and, who's dealing with the same things and let you know that, um, this is my professional advice and advice coming from not just a coach, but someone that's, that's actually had, arguably I can say I've had target panic worse than, uh, worse than anybody because I don't see how it could get any worse than what I had it. And, um, it took me time. It took a long time. And there was, there was years where with my hinge releases, um, I was able to make a good shot and I would a new company, a Carter or a True Trueball, or someone would come out with a cool new release and everybody would be shooting it. And, you know, all the pros um, who were pretty much getting paid to promote it, they were um, talking about it and I'd want to try it and I could literally grab it one time and I'd feel the urge to punch it. And I just knew, you're just not ready for this yet. You know, you can make great shots with this tool. Just stay with that tool. And that's why... Um, if you you know if you looked back at some of my uh pictures as a rookie um which i started shooting professionally in uh the end of 97 i didn't have a um i didn't have a trigger release i don't think um until maybe 2002 i'll have to check but i think it was 2002 before I actually was able to shoot a trigger release, uh, for the first time. So don't be afraid of that tension release. You're going to learn so many things. And even if you get to the point where you cure your target panic, uh, and you move on to another release, that's great. Uh, but there's probably still going to be a day, you know, where you pick up your, your release you want to shoot and, You feel like there's just something not clicking. You can feel that you've got some frustration, some tension in the mind, and you end up going back to the other one. You find your stroke, and everything gets right back on track. All right, well, now that I've congratulated you and gave you uh, my advice, I'm going to jump into uh, some of these questions that are still left over from Instagram. There's a ton of them, but I'm going to try to plow through them here um, as fast as I can. So, uh, first question is, uh, can you talk, and this is from, let's see, I don't, his name is Lance McEachern. So, yeah, his uh, his account is McEachol. Uh So, his question is, can you talk about, or do... Um, Let's see, can you talk about or do an Archer Advantage how to, um, say he has the software but he's having trouble using it. The Archer Advantage is a software that lets you print off your sight tapes. Um, since I've changed to my new computers, um, I actually haven't been able to, uh, to get the newest version to work with um, my newest version, the Mac. So I can't do it for you right now. Um, but... I'm surprised that, uh, Perry doesn't have like a tutorial on that. Um, I'll try to look through that. It might be worth just doing a film where I just walk through a tutorial with that. Um, it's kind of weird. Uh, I keep having to buy those updates each year as well. And, um, honestly, another thing that I do that all the time that's, that's even faster is Lancaster Archery has, um, Sight mark stickers and it's just pre-made scales that's all scaled out and i've just got to the point now where i can i can get a really good 20 mark i get a really good 80 mark because my elk in the backyard's at 80. i get a 20 and an 80 and then i find a scale um, from that big sticker of scales that match my speed and uh slap that on there, and it works awesome. If you're a serious target archer and a field archer, definitely be worth work looking into some of those other programs. Um, but if I'm gonna be totally honest, I've just for the since I haven't had the archers advantage work um, here in the last year or so uh, with my newer computers, I've just kind of got to the point where I'm using these pre-done stickers, and they work fine. Um, so I've been happy with that, and that's actually what I did um, when I was down in. Uh, When I was over in Switzerland, when we built my Prevail 37, we just got a really good 20 meter mark. And then uh, I went right to uh, 70 meters, shot it and got a 70 meter mark, um, put that scale on. Then I walked right up to the 50 meter mark and shot with my sight set on 50 meters. It shot dead on, so my scale's perfect. but really, the main thing when you're using that program, what's matter what matters the most is really um, learning. Well, there's a couple things that that skew that program. Um, one is the speed that you have to enter, because most chronographs just aren't accurate compared to you know you can get a chronograph that varies five or six feet a second easily, and um, if you if you have that chronograph that is a little bit slower, well, now all your scales are slightly slower. I always found actually um, that I had to print, I had to input my speed about six feet per second slower than what they, than what you know your chronograph or my chronograph was saying. But really, the critical parts are your like that peep height and your sight length. Really, getting an accurate measurement f- from the peep. To the actual where your pin is on your on your sight, so you know for mine, I think it was always right at about um, thirty-two inches. Uh, and that's from literally the center of my peep to where my scope rod comes out of the side of my sight. Um, that measurement's really really important. And then your peep height measurement, which your peep height measurement has to be measured at full draw. And when you're anchored at full draw, you have to measure from the center of that arrow shaft in a vertical line straight up to the center of that peep sight. Mine's normally at about 3.9 inches. Um, and that that's actually a very, very important measurement because regardless of what bow you switch to or what bow you're shooting, uh, that measurement is always gonna be the same because that measurement is the distance from your anchor point to your eye. And unless your head grows bigger, Um, at a rapid pace, that that number should not change, and that's important because if you get a really short bow, for example, if um, you're shooting your Prevail 40, and then all of a sudden you go and decide to shoot um, a 31-inch bow with a 6-inch brace height, well, what you'll find is your peep has to be way higher in the string when the bow is at rest because as you draw back that triangle gets much sharper and your peep comes down lower once it comes to full draw and that's why it has to be higher at rest so anytime you get a new bow an important measurement to know is what your peep height is when the bow's at full draw and I do this with my bow on a draw board um, I put an arrow on there or you can do it if you have like a um, a draw machine or you can have someone just measure it for you but More or less all you need to do, or even when you put a brand new string on your bow, you can clip an arrow on there, have a D loop, like a temporary D loop on, draw back, come to your anchor point, put the tip of your nose on the string, um, and then have uh, someone move forward to where they're measuring directly in line with your eye um, and just measure straight down that string to the center of the shaft right where, you know, right where that, that mark would be and find where that 3.9 or 4 inches is depending on what you have. And uh, you know they can on a good built string, there'll always be a little piece of string material tied in the center of the string. You can slide that up or down um, to where you kind of have your temporary mark and you know exactly where your peep is. But that's a very, very valuable mark uh, to know. And then from there, just really taking accurate measurements um, on your site. I would normally, honestly, a lot of times, if they're if you're doing something wrong and the and it's frustrating, um, then something that's easy for you to do that really doesn't wreck anything is, you know, if you print off what you think it is and then you you know you put it on there and say it's it's slow or it's fast, um, you know, say you put it on there, you get your twenty and then you you think you've done everything right and you go out and you shoot at 70 and also now your 70 is like, you know, two feet low. Just move that sight down to where you are hitting dead center at your 70 mark and then go back and just print a scale off. In that case, you would print a scale off and just change your speed to a much slower speed and find a scale on the new print off that the 20s match And then the new 70 matches evenly where your actual 70 is on your indicator pin. Um, And then, you know, you pretty much can, you know, the speed doesn't really matter. It's all ballistics. It's just, it's just gapping. It's continual gapping. Um, So the speed isn't really relative at all. um, As long as your gap's the same, which is why um, on the Lancaster site, sight tapes. They're just easy and they're already, you know, it's on a piece of vinyl. So it's kind of pre-stuck, um, which works really, really well. And the only thing that's kind of, you don't get is you don't get your short range conversion, which if you're a field archer, uh, that short range conversion can be really helpful, especially if you're shooting out in reading or something like that. But, um, you should be able to figure it out, dude. It's, uh, it's not that bad. Uh, but those measurements that I talked about are the most critical, uh, next question here is from Sam Kieser. Um He's uh, S D Lorax. I don't know. I don't know how everyone pronounces their their handles, but uh, he says, um, "How did you practice with the new Rage Tripan before you shot it um, at an animal? It doesn't come with a practice tip." Says he's never shot a Rage before, but wants to, but really wants to have a practice tip. So. For whatever reason, um, they haven't made new practice heads for the tri-pans, and you know they kind of said that. Um, what Rage said was, "I called him uh, and talked to the engineer about this, and he said that the amount of people that that throw away their practice, their Rage practice points is like massive. So um, he he said that most people are just using field points. That's the reality. Most people do." Um, so he said that they're just, you know, a lot of people that have shot rage in the past. They have one of the rage practice heads. Um, and honestly, I've checked it against my field points and they're so dang close that, uh, I'm pretty comfortable with exactly where they're hitting. Um, you know, I've always said, regardless of what type of broadhead you have, I always feel like it's a really good investment to just buy um, an extra pack of um, replacement blades when you first get it um, just because, you know, it's it's a real, it's a cheap investment to really make sure, Especially you know, this is especially true if you're a long distance person, um, just having that on there. In the past, um, what they've done or what I've done is um, I've actually just epoxied the blades in. Um, so that they're just fixed in the in the closed position depending on what type of target you shoot um, they can that'll work you know if you're shooting a super super dense target where it's you know where it's like just hitting like almost like super solid foam uh, they may or may not deploy but you know I've always said once you especially once you've used a broadhead keeping that old one and you know using that to kind of glue those blades in and do some practicing. I think is really important and really if you're checking you know if you spend that one extra pack of uh, replacement blades uh, and you know check that thing you know 20, 50, 90, whatever you're comfortable with uh, you'll have a really good idea of where it hits and then uh, you know hopefully especially with that head you know it should be hitting dead on if it's hitting way off then you've got some other issues you need to focus on as well. but uh, yeah, you should. You could probably. Um, I don't know. I guess the thing you could do is maybe even ask the shop. They may have some of the some of the original hypodermic practice heads as well. But um, I haven't had much problem just shooting them against field points. It's really the the the, the difference is really just in drag. It's pretty minimal. Um, I find I find it's actually way more important for at least with that broadhead or with a hypodermic, it's way more important for people to practice with their lighted knocks um, than it is for them to practice with that particular broadhead. Um, so hopefully that helps you out. I did tell them that you asked for it and told them that there probably is some uh, some interest in that. So maybe we'll see one of those become available uh, from Rage. Um I'm also broadcasting live right now on um, on Instagram, so it's uh, it's cool to see comments coming from them. At the same time, I'm trying to do the podcast as well. It's a little bit confusing. Um, I'm having a, a double dose of coffee this morning. I've got some uh, I've got some on it MCT oil in there, quite a bit actually, and it's been sitting a while, so it kind of looks like an oil slick. On top of my coffee. Um, but it's pretty good. Butter coffee is really good. MCT oil coffee is really good. Um, I love it. I'm actually wearing my... Uh, Jim Miller sent me some of his new Miller Brothers MMA shirts. Um, so I'm feeling really patriotic this morning. With my stars and stripe hammers. And I got my uh, red, white, and blue Hoyt hat on too. So I'm kind of feeling feeling good. I need to uh, run do my run this morning. And just scream america that's what i feel like um next question here is from log ss underscore calnan um he's pretty much just saying can humidity of the heat affect your arrow um yeah so humidity and heat are kind of two different things but yeah humidity can certainly affect any ballistic as well as um air, air density uh, altitude can affect it, um, certainly humidity, uh, tailwinds, headwinds, crosswinds. Um, you know, it's funny sometimes when you learn to shoot, you'll find out that sometimes with a headwind you'll have lift and sometimes you'll have push. Um, and then with tailwinds, it's the same thing, just depending on how the tailwind's coming in with an arrow, sometimes you'll actually have lift and sometimes you won't. Uh, the people that recognize it the most are the recurve archers, um, mainly because depending on how their fingers are coming off the string, they have a little bit more paradox um, and their arrows are going a lot slower too. So they're kind of in the air longer as well. Uh, but yeah, you do need to, that's one thing that I always do when I'm going on a hunt. I always make sure that when I change locations, and this happened a lot when I would, um you know, there was times where I'd have a tournament all the way on the East coast. And then I would have a tournament like in uh, grand junction, Colorado. And, you know, there was times where my scales would certainly be a little bit different and I would have to make note of that. You know, as a hunter, there's been times where I've been on super high elevation hunts, uh, and just found that my gapping was a little bit different. So, you know, you just have to to make note of it. Normally, those minor changes are going to be mathematically consistent too. Um, it's not like you shouldn't go somewhere in your forties a foot high, and then your fifties only half inch high. Uh, what you'll find is, you know, if the air's thinner, just like with golf balls, you know, they're they're hitting further at a percentage. So try to kind of you can maybe in your mind try to figure out what that percentage is. You know, if you say okay, you know, at, at at 20 yards, I'm, you know, I'm actually, you know, I'm hitting, I'm hitting dead center. If I actually step back to 20, I'm hitting high and I have to shoot, or I'm sorry, I have to shoot at 22 yards. So in other words, you're two yards hot at 20. Well, then if you go to 50 and you're shooting, you find out, okay, well, for my 50 to hit dead center, I have to go to 55. Well, that's pretty easy. If, if your 20 two and your 50 five, that's just telling you that, you know, there's about a ten percent change and that would be massive by the way. Um but you know sometimes it's it's just easier to to tell yourself, okay, you know, I'm more or less hitting, you know, one inch high, you know, one inch high at twenty, there's about two inches at thirty, it's about four inches at 40. Um you know you can kind of go through that and then and instead of readjusting everything just making mental notes of it. You know, I've, I've definitely had that, um, I'm trying to think where I was, it might've been a bear hunt or something where I went and we were actually at a really high elevation. Um, and, and it's hard to say to some people, honestly, don't do a very good job of getting really awesome marks where they're, um, where they're at at home. You know, if you get marks on like a slope, it can vary cause you're not like maybe doing that little cut or you're Maybe you're aiming a little bit different, high or low. Um, So you'll, you kind of need to pay attention to that. Um, But also I've had times where um, this is a big mistake. I see this a lot in hunting camps. So take note of this. Uh, A lot of times, you know, people will go to a hunt. They're anxious or anxious. They're worked up. They're trying to shoot in some hunting clothes for the first time or whatever and they get in camp, and they just feel like after that first twenty arrows, something's wrong with my bow. Um, get to camp and really shoot for a while, and don't be fast to make changes on your equipment. Um, you know, try to get loose and get in your kind of backyard shooting routine. Um, when it comes to like your actual foundation and your structure, it's easy to it's really easy to go to a hunt and do the same type of thing that people do and. Big archery tournaments, where all of a sudden they get there and they're really tense. They put a bunch of extra face pressure on the string, or you jam your beard into your arrow, um, things like that. Now, if you go there and you're hitting different because all of a sudden you took uh, a fresh pack of lighted knocks out of the package and slammed them in there before you filled your quiver, or you know you go and put f- four different types of broadheads in your quiver, well, that's all problems too, right? So um, you know, air, air density, headwinds, tailwinds, all that stuff is very important to learn. And it's also, um, what I found is an arrow that is smaller in diameter and heavier in mass weight is affected less by that. All that stuff. Um, you know, it just, you know, something that's, something that's got a lot of momentum, something that's, you know, just solid flying through the air is, uh, it's a lot more consistent. Um, so kind of, you know, take, take note of that. That's why I've always liked shooting an arrow that's, you know, well over 500 grains. Um, I just find that, you know, my consistency around the world, um, is, is, is much better. And, um, it's also a reason too, why I really like to have a hunting site that allows me to just move my whole gang, meaning um, you know, you've got your site housing with your pins. Um, you know, there's certainly times where I've gone somewhere and maybe I, I'm hitting a little bit high or a little bit low or a little bit right or a little left. And instead of moving each individual pin, because that can screw you up pretty fast, you know, start by just moving the whole housing. That gang adjustment is really good. And then having a site, you know, especially if you're someone like me that has a site housing that has multiple pins, but then you're then you're moving the whole site up or down for longer yardages or if you're a single pin shooter, having a site that allows you to just adjust that indicator needle to where if you do have to move your site a little bit higher, a little low once you get to a hunt, uh, you can do that and then just adjust your indicator needle uh, back to your 20 mark or back to your home base or wherever. Uh, and I think you'll be super happy. Okay, next question here is from Big Larry 328. And his question is dog poo and the human response. Um, well, I think with dog poo, there's multiple responses. Uh, with Ben O'Brien in my backyard when we were uh, shooting back there and practicing. And he was in his sandals and hit one of Shades' fresh dog turds, uh, his response was, "There, it's pretty consistent when someone slides into a hot, steamy dog turd with their sandal when they're trying to shoot in their backyard. Uh, for some reason, my dog Shades, she goes through these patterns of uh, dropping landmines in different areas of the yard. And about two months ago, she had gravitated towards Uh, between the 30 and 40 uh, targets and it was yeah there was a lot of mornings where I got up and I wasn't thinking about it and I ran into them so that's why if you ever come to my house you'll recognize that at the bottom of my stairs right before you walk out where I shoot uh, there's a pair of UA boots right there and that's because those are my dog turd boots And they, they stay there for when I practice. That's the best thing. Um, okay. Next question here is from West. Let's see West Michigander. And he's saying, um, you mentioned draw length a lot, but not sure I've heard you talk much about arrow length. What's your ideal draw length to arrow length, uh, ratio. So personally, when it comes to arrow length, <laughs> you know, I'm a, just like what we talked about a second ago, when it comes to, um, ballistics and consistency and having arrows that are affected less by elements, um, the less surface area you have flying through the air, the less difference you're going to have. Um, so, I really try to keep my arrows as short as I can. Um, when it comes to my hunting bows, uh, my hunting bows are cut with the arrow right level with pretty much my hand. So um, my arrow length is cut right, really right in front of my burger button holes or the arrow rest hole um, just because that way my broadhead is in front of my hand if You know, if by chance I pop a blade open going through the brush or, you know, if you accidentally move your finger up a little bit, uh, you don't want to shoot a finger off. Um, I have shot my finger multiple times. Um, Not with, well, I've shot it once with a broadhead. I've shot it twice with field tips. Uh, Both times that I've shot with field tips, it's gone through. Um, and that was really when I was using target bows and the older style target bows were the handle. Um, the grip position in the riser was in the center of the bow. So a lot of times you wanted your arrow rest very close to the bottom of the shelf. Uh, and there was a point in time where just because of the shape of the handle, uh, my hand would slide up pretty high and my pointer finger would be up pretty high. And there was a few times I got my pointer finger in the way of my arrow and shot it. Um, So make sure if you're shooting a broadhead, don't, you know, I don't want, I don't really want people to go by one of the freak rests, um, which it has a long overdraw, and then end up having a broadhead two or three inches behind your hand. Um, There's just a lot that can go on like that. Um, I actually saw someone one time, uh, when I was working at Matthews, um, my, uh, my boss at the time, Joel Maxfield, his wife, Janice always shot. She was a great hunter. And one time they were, he was building her a new bow and he hadn't really checked the draw length, but he just kind of mounted an arrow rest on there really quick. And, you know, he kind of told her to just pull her arrow back and she, you know, he had one of her hunting arrows cause she always hunted And when she ripped her arrow back, the she like hit the back of her the back wall of the cam so hard or the front of the arrow must have hit the rest. But the arrow actually flipped down and was like laying. She's at full draw and the arrow is just sitting on the top of her hand, like actually where your wrist connects to your thumb. It's just sitting right there and she's at full draw. And Joel had to like flip the arrow like straight up in the air cuz she was like you know he knew that if she tried to let down she was going to you know push it right through her hand uh so you know you got to be careful when it comes to broadheads don't don't bring your arrow too far back um I'm comfortable I'm really comfortable with having it directly in line uh with the burger buttonhole um because your your broadhead should be still contained within your shelf within your riser um, but with my target bows, um, it varies. So this past year, um, I actually switched to like a free crest and I'd cut my arrows back quite a ways. Like some of my target arrows have been as short as 28 inches and I've got a 31 inch draw. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't really like long arrows. I feel like I'm already at a disadvantage to most target archers because my arrows are the length they are right now. Um, so I try to cut mine down shorter. Now, if you're someone that, um, and also keep in mind, if you're a target archer and you're asking this question, um, there's some target archers that want to shoot a larger diameter shaft for like indoor shooting. And in those cases, like for example, um, like one of my students, Lucy Sullivan, um, you know, she's, she's a 26 inch draw. So Uh, she can't cut arrows down to 26 inches um, without them becoming rapidly too stiff when she's trying. And that's, that's when she's trying to shoot a large diameter indoor arrow, okay? So that's why you see a lot of these shorter archers with arrows that are full length arrows when they're shooting like Vegas rounds and stuff. Because they're trying to keep the arrow long enough to where it's still... It weakens the spine enough to where the arrow actually spines out correctly for their draw length and their draw poundage. Um, but for my hunting arrows, I normally try to keep, you know, maybe about one inch in front of where my arrow rest is coming up and holding it, which in most cases um, is right at the burger buttonhole. And I know a lot of people, you know, see that and they're like, "Wow, your arrows are really short." But honestly, um, what is the benefit of having a longer arrow? I mean, on, honestly, I I want my arrow to pass through. If I'm if I'm in a hunting situation, I want it to pass through. So the more arrow you have, the more drag and friction you have of that arrow going all the way through. So you know, that's not a positive. Um, the more arrow that's in the air, the more air, especially with a crosswind that can be blown against that extra one or two inches, uh, which adds up. So I always feel like it's better to, to keep that arrow short. Um, you know, make sure that you have enough to where if you're pulling hard on your back wall, you're not pulling the point of your arrow past your arrow rest. Um, but in most cases, like with my arrow rest, with my elevate rest, standard elevate rest, um, I've brought my rest all the way back to where it hits the tech riser on my Hoyt. Um, so, the when the arrow rest comes up, it's actually behind the riser, the rest itself. So, by cutting my arrow shaft flush with the burger buttonhole, I do have about an extra inch or so. So, um, you know, that is really what I go by. And now, if you're really focused on tuning, then your arrow length, especially if you have some arrows that you're designating just for tuning aspect to where you know maybe you cut some short to start with but then as you're doing your hill tuning you realize okay this arrow is actually too stiff for me but i can't increase my poundage on my bow because i'm maxed out so in that case you would know okay well if i make this arrow longer it's going to weaken it so maybe i need to to build some arrows two inches longer and again then you're kind of in that same mentality as uh as people that are shooting their Vegas arrows that have them really long. But when you look at archers, um, honestly, I always felt like, um, you know, you look at like Mike Schulster or you look at like the Wild Brothers, they're all um, shooting very, very short arrows and they don't have much wind drift. How much they have to aim off of a target or how much they have to bubble into the wind Um, or lean their cam into the wind when they're shooting long distance at tournaments, it's substantially less than mine because they're shooting 26, 27-inch arrows, uh, whereas, you know, I'm shooting anywhere from 29 or 29.5 to a a 28.5, somewhere in there. Um, And that extra two inches makes a big difference, I'm telling you, especially at at 90 meters or um, 99 yards, you know, which we used to shoot a lot um, in competition or 70 Um, so yeah, that's that. Um, next question here is from Parker, uh, underscore lipitizy lip lipsy. (laughs) Um, he's always saying it's getting close to September. We got to talk about elk season elk calling. So yeah, let's definitely do that. I need to get, um, I need to get an elk guest on. Um, one thing I'll mention, um, and I, I kind of got to f- get this figured out. Um, actually I'll just give out the number. Um, so Todd up at Red Willow Outfitters, which is where I've always hunted. Uh, I always hunt up at Red Willow Outfitters for the opener. Um, this is short notice, but if you're, um, an independent business owner like me and you can kind of fly by the seat of your pants, you might be interested in this. Um, there is some room in my hunting camp in Alberta. Um, it's there's two different times the end of August season and then the first week of September season um there's uh a couple tags that are still available and if you want them you need to contact um either Todd Lowen or Taylor Lowen uh I better give you Taylor's number I'll just give it out so Taylor's number is 780 um that's Taylor Lohan at Red Willow Outfitters. If you're wanting to get on a hunt with me, then uh, you can book in. Uh, the elk elk hunting up there is awesome. I've always shot one. Um, there's definitely opportunity. Uh, the bulls are, if you're an elk hunter, that, or if you're trying to elk hunt for the first time, price-wise, um, you know, hunting Canada isn't super cheap. Uh, but what happens is once you're up there and you've paid for your full your full week in camp, um, then, uh, at that point you can buy, you can actually buy several different tags, uh, for, for pretty good price. Um, you know, like for example, um, depending on the different types of tags, like if you wanted to have a bear tag in your pocket too, it's like 500 bucks. Or if you wanted a moose tag in your pocket, it's 500 bucks. Um, so, you know, they've pretty much got set prices for how many days in camp. Uh, you're going to be there. Obviously, you're going to have an outfitter, so you've got someone with you all the time. Uh, but the terrain's pretty, pretty chill there. It's not. It's not like it's going to kill anybody. Um, you just you kind of cover a lot of a lot of flat ground, a lot of river bottoms. Um, so you've got some climbing. You kind of fall down into deep river bottoms. Um, but when it comes to strategy there, um, what you want to do is. I've just found early season like that, you kind of make a few calls, and if you get something to respond, you stay on it, Um, but I really like to get out when it's still dark in the morning and try to hear um, an elk or two call and then do my best to really get as close as I can to that group, Um, and then, you know, really just try to focus on almost still, still hunting And just do a lot of, um, I I almost do a lot of like calf calling at that time as well. Um, I I found that during that early season, the cows will respond to that and they'll start talking to you. And usually there's a bull with the cow. So that works really well. The other thing that's worked really well for me um, during the early season, believe it or not, is midday, um, just midday calling um, in the middle of that day, if you still hunt um, and you just move really slow, advance through the timber, um, I've just found that in the middle of the day, um, I've I've had so many opportunities up there. Um, the biggest the biggest muley I've ever shot was at you know one o'clock. Um, well, several muleys I've shot have been right around the one o'clock time. Um, I've shot several bulls um, right about, you know, between one and three o'clock. Mainly with the bulls, I'm just in areas where I've seen the herds go in. So in other words, in the morning, um, I've seen herds exit the fields. I've seen where they went. And then I just do my, instead of trying to force your way and catch elk, which is usually not going to happen, I'll try to to just kind of let them go and settle. And then I'll continue to mule deer hunt or something like that. And then, uh, I'll actually get up there and slip up in there, uh, more in the middle of the day and just really just super light cow calls and just still hunt, move slow and cow call. Um, and a lot of times, as soon as you get within that little bedroom area, they'll start talking back and then you're, you're pretty much right there. You're in the mix Um, I've had luck every year, uh, doing that every single year. Um, you know, depending on the wolves, if wolves are in the area, you've got to relocate your area quite a bit. Um, but yeah, if, if anyone's interested in that, uh, make sure you give Taylor a call, um, right away. Uh, be really cool. My buddy Dusty and Jeremy are going to be there. Um, I think, uh... I think another special guest may be there, um, so yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting. I don't want to speak on his behalf right now until he until he's got a plane ticket bought. But yeah, I mean, I want to share camp with someone cool, and I'm going to be filming uh, an episode up there of Knocked a Fork too. So I'll have a, a Traeger rolling. Um, so it'll be good. It's a fun place. Um, it's pretty pretty comparable with uh, prices of other elk hunts. Um for the elk side of things. The elk aren't gonna be massive. I've killed a three hundred inch bull there, but I also have killed a lot of uh, you know, raghorn bulls. I'm I'm actually okay with shooting any bull. Um I know that I've the last couple years I've gotten really lucky and I've shot some really nice bulls up there. Um I've actually gave away every every bull that I've shot up there I've given away um, the first, the last two big one, or the, the big one that I shot three years ago, um, I actually gave to Jeremy, um, because Jeremy had never been on an elk hunt before. And Jeremy had been with me for 15 years or so, um, in BC on hunts and packed moose out with me and Dusty and we've packed out moose for him and, uh, he's skinned a buttload of bears and gotten mosquito bites and been with me in cars that broke down in the middle of the mountains and everything else. So, uh, I gave that, that whole bull to him. And, uh, then the next year I actually was going to split it, believe it or not. I kind of told, uh, we were going to cut the skull in half and give one to Dusty and one to Jeremy. Cause the three of us were all on the hunt together when I shot him, And then, uh, And that was actually a late morning hunt. Late morning hunt, we hunted in the morning. We never heard a single uh, bull call back, never heard any talking. So we actually uh, went and got breakfast, Uh, ate breakfast and went back out. And this is something I've talked about a lot in whitetail hunting. Uh, I've always kind of called it the gentleman's hunt. It's really good for turkey turkey hunting. It's really good for whitetails during the rut you know, don't be afraid of going out at 10 o'clock and starting your hunt and hunting from 10 to one. Like I said, that one o'clock number is good. Uh, but with that one big one that I had shot, it was, uh, it was later in the morning, uh, hadn't heard a single elk, hadn't even seen an elk. And I literally let out one bugle, just kind of a, you know, just like a light, light squeal. And, uh, this bull answered right back. And as soon as he answered back, we just immediately covered ground and went, It just kind of went to him at an angle to where our wind was still favorable. And I kind of thought we need, you know, he's already left the field, he's in the timber, we need to get to him. And we actually kept going and uh, about After about a couple hundred yards of us going, I called one more time while we were walking, and he answered back, and we were literally kind of getting close to meeting one another. I didn't realize how fast he was coming, and actually, uh, as we were going through the timber and I had my Be the Decoy hat on, which, um, you know, my Be the Decoy hat's helped me a lot, uh, I actually was walking and just trying to pick my path for navigation as quiet as I could, And all of a sudden, Jeremy actually grabbed me and Dusty because Dusty was filming me. Jeremy was kind of just, um, he was going to be our fallback caller. He grabbed me and just turned me to the side. And uh, I looked down there and sure, sure as crap, I had just walked past the bull that was like 40 yards away. We could see the top of his horns going through the willow thickets. So I actually called at him again and he turned and faced us. And then I ended up getting the shot. So that rack, I was going to split between the two, but Dusty ended up telling Jeremy, you've never, you've never hunted one before or got one before. He's like, you have this one. And I was kind of so impressed that Dusty gave him the whole thing that, uh, the next year when I shot one, I just said, well, Dusty, this one's yours because Jeremy has one. Um, so yeah, it's, it's worked out pretty good. Um, I, I've got uh, I've got elk racks in here, and I've got elk racks all over the place. And honestly, there there's certain ones that uh, that I want to have here, but there's I would way rather have a good friend remember that hunt, especially when they work just as hard as I did. But uh, yeah, light calling early season definitely focus on water holes can be good too. I know this kind of sounds like everyday stuff but uh it's very valid there's um there's a couple areas in these river bottoms that even though there's water in the bottom there's some meadows that hold water and those herds they'll literally cross the river to go up into the meadow and just kind of meander about um within that that those willow thickets and all that stuff so make sure uh, you know, you kind of key in on those areas. Go to those areas and look for sign. If there's a tremendous amount of sign there, you may be better off not actually focusing on calling in that area. Um, you may be better off just just really um, keeping that area quiet and setting up there, and even doing some light calling, um, like when you're actually in, like set up at that location. Just light calling every now and then, rather than actually trying to hunt your way into that location. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's valid. And you know, the other thing too, depending on uh, depending on the situation, if you're allowed to, don't be afraid to throw a game camera down there just to try to get a time of when are these elk coming here. Uh, Dusty and I had a setup last year where we found a major trail where some elk were going down to a water source. Um, and we set up on it one night and we were certain we were going to see a whole pile elk, but we never did. And we ended up leaving a camera, uh, leaving a camera there. And then when you go back the, uh, the next day, you realize they're actually moving at a completely different time. So even though the sign was awesome, we realized us being right there at that time was not going to be valid. We, we needed to be there. Be at another spot when they're passing that spot because even though this was a great concentration area, it was a transition area to where the transition was happening when it was still dark. So that wasn't working out really well. Uh, I'm going to say bye to my Instagrammers. Uh, Instagram's getting ready to cut you guys off. So uh, have a good day. And um, yeah, I think all in all, if you focus on those simple strategies for the early season, And then as you move into, you know, at least around here in the U S, uh, Montana, New Mexico, things like that. Once you move, um, later into September, my favorite time is always, um, my favorite time is like the 18th of September. That's my favorite time. I feel like big bulls, um, are actually kind of got their harems together and they're starting to be responsive and protective at that point. I think enough, uh, enough of the smaller bulls have kind of gotten fired up and they're starting to get impatient with not breeding. So they're actually incringing on some of those harem bulls. Um, So at that point, the harem bulls are a little bit more talkative. And honestly, if they're talking, if it's a big bull like that and he's just talking a little bit at first daylight or a little bit when another bull gets close to him, use that as an opportunity to intercept more so than call, you know, if it's a super mature bull, you're not going to call him in. Um, the best thing to do is to let the other elk's natural talk, just give away his location and then really focus on how do you maneuver to a position where you can get in close. Uh, the other thing too, this was a tactic that Randy Ulmer actually taught me, uh, that has worked, um, is, if you, do that, um, if you do follow a, a harem to their bed and you can't catch up, which is pretty common if you're ever behind elk, then you're going to stay behind the elk. Um, then in that case, uh, a cool strategy is to actually uh, stay behind them, really try to keep eyes on them to where you know where they're bedding. And then during the middle of the day, try to slip closer to that bed and make some light calls and see if you do get a response. If you don't get a response, then the best thing you can do is just hang tight, keep the wind in your favor, be patient, hang tight until evening. Um, what Randy taught me was a lot of mature bulls when they first get up in the evening and the you know the rest of the harem's kind of stretching up the bu- the big mature bull most of the time is going to get up and he's going to start like raking. He's going to start rubbing some branches and raking and doing things like that and he he told me that he's killed a lot of big bulls by just waiting for the bulls, you know, trying to keep his eye on the bull and then waiting for that bull to get up and start to do his raking for the evening and he said at that point he actually goes in on him for the kill. And if you um if you saw the, and you can, you can watch it. It's kind of a, sh- it's a short hunt. It's not the full hunt, but if you go to, um, the Knock on Archer YouTube channel, um, and you type in, uh, Anchor P, uh, Anchor P Outfitters, um, f- yeah, Anchor P Outfitters. Um, there, I've got a video that I posted there of a, of a, a really nice bull that I shot last year in Montana with them and they're, they're a great place too. Um, he's an awesome guy. Uh, but I actually killed that bull while he was raking. He was raking and he was in his wallow and I literally, I could hear him doing it and I just, we went right down the mountain and went right to him and I shot him at just under 20 yards. Uh, literally it was in a wallow upside down wallowing and rubbing his branches. And, you know, and what Randy taught me was if they're really in there digging in and rubbing branches, um, then they, at that point, they can't, uh, they can't see because they're closing their eyes while they're raking. Um, so that's a pretty helpful tip. If you, if you realize your bull is raking hard he's closing his eyes while he's doing it especially if it's a satellite bull that's kind of off to the side by himself that's a great time to cover ground whenever you can keep an object between you and them do it cover ground and if they're raking and really moving their head then you know then they're especially when their head's down and they're really in there getting after it that's a great time to move and and uh I used that to my advantage last year and went right in on that bull and ended up shooting him at 20 yards, uh, without calling to him. I just literally snuck in on him and, uh, ended up getting my shot. So hopefully that's some, uh, decent elk strategies for you. I'm going to wrap this podcast up, uh, on that story. And hopefully all of you out there, uh, have an awesome day. And, uh, thanks for tuning in everybody. I appreciate it. And I'm going to keep plugging away at these, uh, Q and A's, uh, appreciate everything all of you do. And again, uh, can't thank you enough. No doubt about it. Knock on everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing, knockonarchery.com.